Welcome to How to Win Friends and Dismantle Capital, and I'm your host, Carl. This is an anti-capitalist jobs podcast. We're going to talk about how to manage, survive, or change your career while trying to stay afloat and also make meaningful societal change in our hyper-capitalist American economy. You know, because this is a uh, podcast where we're going to be complaining about our jobs and the things we didn't like about our jobs. So if you are looking for anonymity, uh, that's cool. So that's why I'm just going to allow everyone to kind of introduce themselves with as much detail or as little as they like. So please, guest, go ahead and introduce yourself. Hi, Carl. My dear friend of over 20 years, my name is Alex. Yes, Alex. How are you, buddy? I'm well. How are you? Good, good. There's very exciting. We're at the precipice of a brand new forum for you. Yeah. Uh, um, maybe you can hire a team, <laughs> an influencing team, so that you can spread out your efforts, you know, in a way to reach a, a broader audience. Yeah. I mean, probably use advanced analytics and right. uh, segment targeting. Um, yeah, you're going to have a focus group. You're going to have a marketing plan. So- As I said, this is going to be a podcast that is about work, approaching work, the problems with work uh, from kind of a left perspective, which means, you know, if you're a socialist or a social democrat or I guess even just a liberal, kind of how do you approach uh, building your career? How do you build your career? And how do you deal with all the bullshit and kind of exploitation either of yourself or of other people? or more likely both, that happens in your career planning. So, I don't know. Alex, if you'd like to just uh, kind of give us a background on your career angst, I guess you could call it, or problems (laughs) that you've had. Sure. Um, I'm a lawyer. I graduated from law school in 2012. I went to John Marshall Law School in Chicago, I finished first in my class. Um, oh, you were first? I was. You? <laughs> I know, right? Oh, um, and I don't, I'm not saying that to show off because I don't really, that's not important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it's only important to the extent that it affected my expectations. The expect- mm-hmm. yeah. expectations I had of myself and I think the expectations that I had, of, that others had of me, mm-hmm. or at least as I perceived it, um, perceived them. So yeah, I, I did really well in school. I came out looking to achieve and the whole idea of, my idea of achievement was one that had been, you know, I, I feel in retrospect that I was conditioned to pursue that path of mm-hmm. success. Um, and what, what did that mean? I, you know, I focused on the, you know, making as much money as possible. Right. Um, and I was willing to trade off, um, other things in my life, uh, time with family, time with friends, um, time for myself, um, to reflect and to think and to, you know, get in touch with my own feelings and desires. You know what I mean? Um, yeah. so like, went straight to work. Yeah. And it's, 
you know, by choosing that, that path necessarily meant that I had that those other values that should be important were crowded out uh-huh. um, because of the trade-off that I made. So, you know what, um, can, can I just jump in? Uh, there's something I'd like to note, or maybe you, you can correct me, but one thing I know about law is that like, it's actually a, this, I mean, I used to be a compensation analyst, so that's kind of something I'm interested in, but um, law is like a very bimodal distribution in terms of salaries, right? Like you have the white shoe firms, which starts you at like 140, 150, 160, and then you do like, or you could do like what, like nonprofit work, public defending work, which is like 40, 50 grand. Is that right? Is it that big of a spread? Are there jobs in the middle? Uh, if, if, if you know. Um, there are jobs in the middle, but I think you're right that the, the choice that people make coming out of law school basically fall into those two fundamental buckets. They can either pursue a white shoe law career um, where you're, you know, representing corporate interests, uh, you're representing big money interests because yeah. if you're going to make that money, that means that someone's paying for your services, you know, and only a certain few can afford those services. Correct. Um, so that's a path. Um, and on the other path, you, there are folks who um, choose to serve other interests, less moneyed interests. Um, and because of that, their compensation is way less. So, yeah, yeah. It's, it, I think there's a lot of clustering on both sides of the spectrum. Yeah, I mean, I think it's just very different than, like, say, I mean, even me, I got an MBA, you know, mm-hmm. and um, salaries, I mean, I was in kind of like a second tier outside of the top 25, but it's like, you could get salaries up to 90 or 100 grand, or you could go down to 60, 70, or 80, or, like, there's a much more, like, kind of evenly distributed um, outcome for an MBA, or, you know, even like an undergrad in engineering, or, you know, just some of the other kind of, like, white-collar uh degrees out there where you kind of have that opportunity with, with law. It's like a very stark choice. It, it, it seems like to me, it's like yeah, 50 grand or like 140. That's and it. I th- and I think that uh, what I want to, I guess what, sh- what I should emphasize is that there probably is a lot of there. I mean, I think there are opportunities in between that spectrum, I guess. There are. Um, okay. I, I, well, I think in reality there are, but from the perception of a, you know, third-year law student coming out, they're not necessarily aware of the legal industry. So uh-huh. they don't know um, what opportunities are out there. I think they learn that eventually after practicing law and figuring out what they want to do and what they don't want to do. But um, because they don't have that experience in the legal services industry, they, I think a lot of law students don't, just don't know what's out there. So they, they basically have these, this, I don't know, I don't know if crude's the right word, but this choice between, you know, what side do I want to go on? Yeah. Um, but I, I mean, I, I wonder, like, do you actually think a, somebody coming out of law school could get one of those mid-range jobs or is it only something that tends to be available to people who already have one or two years experience? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Yeah, that is a good question. I don't have the statistics. Yeah, and I don't know enough. Yeah, uh, okay. because I never pursued it, and I guess that's right. the point. I don't mm-hmm. know. Yeah, and if you don't know, you can't pursue it. And right. again, that's my that's my experience. Um, but yeah, I, 
I think that that's the story. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No. So, yeah. Where were we? Um, Do you want me to keep going back talking about my background? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay. So uh, I clerked for two federal judges, which is uh, a pretty good deal. I enjoyed it, but I struggled with aspects of the job. Um, I just struggled. Um, And um, it was, even though it was a a terrific job, um, you know, it was not without hardship. Um, So, so it was caused a lot of anxiety and a lot of stress. And it was weird in that I think what looking back, I think the question I was asking myself was, if you're struggling, how can you be good enough? How can you meet the expectation uh, that's yours and of others of you mm-hmm. um, if you're struggling with this? And I think, you know, I think that caused me a lot of stress. Because I, I, I was like, asking myself that question and I didn't, I felt I was falling short. Because it wasn't well-defined or you just thought it was unrealistic? No, no. I think it was my approach oh. to um the job yeah just too much uh, fantasy you just y- yeah yeah too much fantasy fan. um That'll things yeah things getting in the way of i i don't think i learned how to fail mm-hmm. um i i took failure as a judgment mm-hmm. and i and i think that is a problem uh, I think that I think if if people were taught how to fail as a way to take failure as an opportunity to learn a lesson and become better rather than uh, a metric mm-hmm. to being used as a metric, you know, you either pass or fail. Right. And the outcome is that you're either good or bad. Right. Um, that lesson wasn't taught to me. And I don't know that it's taught to anybody else. No. I mean, just like I, I also have a master's in human resources. So that means like I studied a lot of performance management and all the theory is very clear on this. Like it's exactly what you just said is that, you know, you have to take failure and, you know, it's been adopted now. So like you only hear it from these fucking Silicon Valley guys, like failure is success. But I mean, there's a lot of actual, this can be applied to basically, you know what, that's a fucking meme. All right. I'm talking about strategies to actually develop this i mean putting yeah. it on facebook under you know an elon musk meeting <laughs> doesn't, doesn't help people no no and and and, and, and what and i'm so saying is that you. the theory is there for all levels of work and it's never applied like hr people right. know these management people know this and they don't mm-hmm. do it you know like lawyers i can maybe understand if your partners everybody in a law firm is like or even a judge they all have jds right they didn't study mm-hmm. management but it's like, this is like endemic to every industry. And, and yeah, I'm sure it's worse than law because there's no pretense of managerial talent. It's just, yeah. you know, but no, there's not. And uh, that's a big problem. Yeah. Um, because I mean, just because you're a good lawyer doesn't mean you're a good manager. Oftentimes the thing that made you a good lawyer makes you a bad manager. Yeah. Um, and what happens is because lawyers are basically in charge of their fiefdoms, you know, and I'm talking about partners, they control their own clients. Um, They're the ones at at the top of the chain and they're oftentimes they're the ones making managerial and 
if you want to call it human resources decision mm -hmm. yeah. decisions as it pertains to a particular case, they're the ones making it and they're yeah. not necessarily equipped to, to, to do that. No. And I've experienced that. I mean, just, I mean, there are plenty of lawyers who are good people and probably good managers, but um, in my experience, it's, it doesn't always work out that way. I mean, yeah, I worked for a, a law firm, a white shoe law firm for about a year and a half, and there was like three, three HR people for the whole firm. Are you vaping? Yeah, sorry about that. Yeah, no problem. <laughs> I won't no, do it. There was like three HR people for the whole firm, and I'm just like, what the fuck is this? Like, there was no, like, there was no pretense of like, because, okay, let, let me just give everyone and, and you a breakdown of HR. A lot of the stuff that people think is HR, like um, Oscar on The Office, that's what HR people call employee relations or a generalist, which is like the guy that'll sit down with an employee and a manager and mediate and make sure everybody's happy, right? So there's also HR people who do payroll, who do compensation, but there was like no generalists. There was nothing. There was three HR people in the whole fucking firm that I was at. And it's like, they weren't even trying to pretend like they were going to like be able to have a sit down with you and your boss, you know? Like it was just, and I'm sure it was the same where, where, where you were. Uh, yeah. I, I mean, that wasn't um, in the, the thing that you're describing, that mm -hmm. was, that's not in the jurisdiction of human resources. Um, they just don't do that. And if they do, then, um, yeah, I didn't know it. You were unaware, right? I was unaware and, um, oh, it's, just... yeah, or it def I can't say it was discouraged, but it wasn't encouraged. Mm -hmm. So yeah, no, that's just like, that who gives a fuck story. about this? Yeah. Who gives a fuck about keeping people happy or mediation or whatever? <laughs> it's just like, it's less time that we can bill. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And you know, that raises a whole host of other issues. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, but that's, but you're right. That's the, you know, billing is the number one, um, priority. Yeah. Um, ABB. Right. So you're right. Um, always what, uh, yeah. What else you want to talk about? No. Okay. So, I mean, I think, <laughs> I think that's good to stay with that because you're talking about, you know, how usually when you're at a company and I'm going to try and tie this back to kind of like the macro perspective on companies is that everything's short term. So like, how do you have this short term economy? And, you know, a law firm's different because it doesn't have investors, but it's, a, it's ran by partners. So it's the same incentives, short term mm -hmm. profitability. Everything's in the short term. Everything needs to be done yesterday and perfectly. How do you square that with the very inarguable reality that people are going to fail at complicated things before they get good at them. You know, um, I think that they deal with it. Typical law. I've had this happen before where a lawyer, you know, I did something probably not that important and it was um, not what the lawyer's expectations were, were where in this particular case with this particular person, uh, was notorious at not defining the expectation well. Ugh, it's and, yeah. And it, um, and when, and she discouraged um, follow up questions. 
um, just by her demeanor and what she said. Um, so a lot of times the, the gray area and understanding had to be filled in by me. Um, and a lot of times it was wrong because there was no, there wasn't adequate, you know, communication. Right. Um, and I, I was made to feel that I should shoulder the blame for that. Um, when in fact, I think it was at, at least shared. Right. Um, so it's, and you know, how did I react to that? I felt ashamed Yeah. and I felt embarrassed and I felt, um, like I wasn't like I was a fraud, you know, yeah. it was the question is how do you remedy underperforming, uh, associates or employees? Um, I don't, I don't, I don't have the answer to that, but I know what the answer isn't. And it's, <laughs> it's, it's how I was treated then. And that have, I think that, um, it's happened and it, like my own anecdotal, um, you know, evidence that definitely happens yeah. in the practice of law and it's a problem and it's probably, it probably contributes to why so many lawyers have, uh, struggle with anxiety and depression and addiction. Substance abuse. Yeah. is rampant, right. With, <clears throat> sure. And with attorneys. Know, and I think that's because addiction and substance abuse is a remedy to escape the anxiety that, you know, your internal anxiety that, and the anxiety that you feel from others that you have to deal with. Yeah. I mean, I think it's definitely a kind of unique industry that just thoroughly immiserates like the, like it's like a firm wide thing where it's just like to me it's one of the I guess classic or arch archetypal capitalist arrangements where it's just like it only benefits the people at the top and then everybody else is just fucking miserable and even people at the top are probably miserable too because they're like you know they're fucking workaholics intrinsically that's a I don't know if they're happy or not. Yeah. I think it depends on what, how those people define happiness. Right. My own experience, I never seriously asked myself that question. I never asked that question until very recently. Oof. Um, and I don't know, I can't speak for anybody else, but a lot of, and you know, a lot of the, re I think part of the reason for that, big part of the reason for that is because I was on a, on a path that was predetermined um, that I, sh I thought I should follow mm -hmm. without ever asking myself, what do I want to do? Mm -hmm. And I think that is, con um, looking back, I think that, if you want to call it conditioning, I thought that I think that conditioning came from all over. It comes from popular culture. It comes from seeing people on television who have a lot of wealth uh, mm -hmm. and success put on a pedestal. Can't put it on a pedestal. Can't put the wealth on a pedestal. <laughs> <laughs> right. Can't do that. Right. Um, it comes from family. It mm -hmm. came from the way I was brought up, I was brought up by uh, 
uh, immigrants who had a very distinctive view on how to do well in this country, and it was influenced by their experience. And that was, you know, the, the key to success is to make money and to become like part of the establishment. Is that kind of, I mean, because your, your parents are, are Greek, but I always got the feeling that like they're, they personally were to the left of most of the Greek community that, that, that came over here in the 70s. Is that true or? That's true. On political issues, they were to the left of many Greek immigrants. Yeah. Um, and he, my dad was, he organized, um, you know, labor actions when he was uh -huh. a waiter. Really? Uh, he, yeah. Yeah. And he got fired because of it. Really? Uh-huh. So he was, my mom was in the union, in the teacher's union before she became administration and uh, a principal. So across the front uh, line. Yeah, but well, she, we're, ruled, we're not here she to... ruled. She ruled with a velvet hand. Okay, that's that's good. <laughs> yeah, a velvet glove. Velvet glove. Yeah, right. Um, so uh, you know, I you're right. I was my parents were, I guess, left of a lot of people. But even still, even I yeah. guess the point is, even still, right? Yeah, yeah. Even among that group, I, that was the pervading um, goal like that I should achieve, you know, right. get good grades, get a good job, make money, become established and then do what you want. Um, mm -hmm. And you know what? It worked for them. And I don't fault them for, you know, instructing me to do well, but the way I perceived it was along with all these other influences that, you know, external influences, um, it made my, you know, it, I was singularly focused on the, that goal um, that, uh, and it crowded out anything else I might want to pursue. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, I mean, I think for, for the most part, professional, crowded yeah. out everything I want to do professionally. I yeah. Did. Right. I did. And I, I think that's an adaptive response as a immigrant to the United States. You come here and it's just like, all right, motherfuckers, you are all on your own. Go, you know, it's yeah. like, yeah, I mean, you know, I don't know what it was like back in Greece, but I mean, most of Europe had a modicum of a social safety net and all this stuff. And I'm sure, you know, Greece was probably under the junta or I don't know. Well, my dad left um, Greece in the late 60s. Oh, um, okay. During the junta. I don't know. I th the way he tells it, he attracted the attention of local military or local law enforcement um, for basically taking out books that they found objective uh, or objectionable, rather. Right. Um, like from the library? Yeah, or the bookstore. And my dad, and he did not agree with the junta politically at all. No. Right. So he basically said, fuck this. So he came over, <laughs> uh, he came over to the U.S., by way of Canada. Okay. Uh, yeah. So I don't know what the what the social safety net was. Right. But he was dealing with very real political issues. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Yeah. I mean, like, yeah. There's a safety net, but also we may just kidnap you in the middle of the night and blah blah yeah. blah. Yeah. So, which is that necessarily a what we consider a uh, a democracy? No. Well, yeah. Because it okay. wasn't. It was not. Yeah. It was a. Uh, yeah, so I mean, he comes here and he, you know, he fled from this 
fled from this situation where he was probably under threat because he didn't have political power, at least locally. So what is the message you want to give to your children is, all right, figure out how do you get power in this society and achieve it. And then once that is achieved, you can opt in to more pro-social activities. But if you start as like an organizer, you may never get that opt-in to get prestige or status, right? Like, so exactly. that's, that's kind of, I think, the calculation that probably a lot of people make. I mean, that's the calculation that I made when I got an MBA. I was a fucking teacher. I was a teacher yeah. making like 20 grand a year. And I'm like, all right, I'm doing what I love. And this is not good enough. So uh, I don't know what to do, you know? And it was like, you know, I mean, I was never under, obviously, I was a, I'm a white American male. It's not like there were parts of the state yes. that were coming against me, but I mean, just, uh, just that reality. No one would mistake you for a female. Um, <laughs> I'm all I mean, boy, baby. If, I'm all man. If you, um, you know, took your shirt off, for example, mm-hmm. um, do you, do uh, you want me to you're, uh, yeah. And the show the back. Cause I think that tells the tale. <laughs> No, no, we're not, we're not going to, yeah. I'm a very uh, kind of scout, hairy boy. Yes, very, very much so. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I think you're right. My dad adapted. Right. And he learned to adapt and he, this, this, this formula made sense to him. Yeah. Um, and like I said, I don't, but when the way it played out, um, had for me uh, had very real uh, consequences, dangerous consequences, um, and I didn't respond well to it um, when put under pressure. And I think again, this goes back to um, the issue of how people manage to maintain, you know, their sanity in a system um, that doesn't necessarily. Um, suit them. <laughs> uh-huh. You know what I mean? Right. Um, and you know what? Just that's why we have all this fucking mindfulness shit. Like, it's just like, oh, well, we can't actually invest in like making, you know, our leadership in these companies to be like good managers. So, right. yeah, you got to be mindful and, you know, let's take a mindfulness walk, you know, and you just immediately shift it all the way back to your employee. And let's say, mm-hmm. you know, you let's say you actually decided to be mindfulness and, you know, do all that shit and it fails because it's probably not fucking enough because if someone's shitting down your throat, it doesn't matter. You know, you have to be like an ultra Zen master to get by that. And most people are not because, you know, we're, we're not fucking, you know, we're not trained from birth or whatever. I don't know. I mean, I'm not, I'm not saying it's impossible, but uh, otherwise it's like, yeah, yeah, this system is broken. It doesn't matter how mindful you are or, you know, it's, it's, it's just like such a dodge. Because no one's striking at the root of the fucking problem. <laughs> it sounds, I mean, I know I'm like out of the loop on some things and I haven't really thought about mindfulness, but just like hearing it, hearing you talk about it, it sounds hilarious. Uh, what, so what is mindfulness? Like, can you like describe it to me? I, I mean, I think, you know, mindfulness is essentially kind of what you want to cultivate through meditation. I mean, so, you know, I, I think, you know, like this Zen tradition or, or, you know, the non-Zen Buddhism or whatever. I mean, it, these were these very adaptive responses to like intense, you know, trauma from about years 700 to 1900. 
was like a way to like, you know, basically do therapy on yourself and be like, what am I experiencing? How am I feeling? Why am I feeling this? Is this a valid reaction? You know, and it's, yeah. it's, it's all, I think it's a valid, there's a valid use for it, of course, but in a, in, in a lot of ways, it's a substitute for structural change. You know, it's, Okay, well, we have this feudal system in Japan, and you know, a samurai class could technically cut your head off, and you know, blah 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 blah. So, like, how do you live like that? You know, how do you live in this situation where it's just like life is cheap, you're expendable, and you have no power? It's like, okay, well, I'll change what I can change, which is my response. And you know what? There's absolutely nothing wrong with that. It was probably a better adaption than what our Christian ancestors did. I don't know about the Greek Orthodox. Maybe you guys have a whole tradition that I'm. I don't know, of. but you know Who what I knows? mean. They might, they might not. I'm, uh, I'm done with I'll, them. I'll, I'll look into that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're, we're we're gonna. I'm gonna make a note of the Greek Orthodox research point in this podcast, so we can get yeah, back. Yeah, and we could supple, supplement it in a <laughs> bonus episode to our <laughs> to our subscribers, uh, your subscribers. Yeah. We what the fuck? We what the Carl? fuck? We man. <laughs> Fucking driver, man. So, um, but, all right, if I hear you right, mindfulness is a reaction to be to being in a shitty situation. Essentially, right? yeah. And what we should be doing is, how do we sh- solve the shitty situation to begin with? So I, you know, it's really important to note, like, why mindfulness now in a corporate setting is so ridiculous, whereas, you know, the actual tradition that it came out of made perfect sense for the time and place. We're in a freaking advanced industrial democracy. We should have better tools to address this. And I think, you know, especially yeah. in a corporate setting, which is like, this is the deliberate policy choice that we have these jobs set up like this, you know, that we it's have. A, this. Yeah, it's a top down approach and very few voices matter. And those voices, I don't think are getting honest feedback or if they are, they're ignoring it. Either way, uh, people like the, the decision makers, are, um, I don't know. They're, they're, like you said, it's a system. It's a system failure. It is a system um, failure. Yeah, because they'd get more out of it. They'd actually get more out of it if you yeah. treated people better. Call me fucking crazy, but I okay. think a happy workforce is something that uh, employers want. It absolutely is. A healthy workforce, a well-fed workforce, a workforce that doesn't have to worry about. <laughs> Putting the kids through college, you know, uh-huh. for example, um, yeah. having access to resources like physical health, mental health resources. These are things that people should have that will enable them to be good employees. Why exactly. are they, why, like, all moral questions aside, why isn't it being done more? And yeah. like I said, I think it's being done because either the voices aren't you know, no one's identifying the need. And if they are, um, they're not, it's not moving decisions. Well, no, I mean, I think that's absolutely, and I speak as someone who I basically wanted to go into HR. I mean, I don't know if I'm going to stay with it, but like, I don't like a lot of people say HR is, is the cop and it is HR is kind of like the cops and they will go to bat for the company. But a lot of the times what HR is there to do is be like, you know, this sounds like a cliche, but like, let's find the win-win solutions here. You know, it's like, it doesn't always have to be fucking adversarial. It's not always covering up sexual harassment or something like that. It's like you boss, shut the fuck up for five minutes and let your employee talk. And then like, 
You know, your employee will be so much happier if you just talk for five minutes less. And is that a big of a loss for you, boss? No, it's of course not. But it's like, it's just like nobody empowers HR to basically, I'm going to go to bat for HR in, in a way, is that it's also historically been women who work in HR. And you know what? Not, co not coincidentally, uh, that's why it's been kind of ignored. You know, it's like HR has always been there to be like, listen, you need to tone this shit down. They want everybody to walk away from a situation happy. And uh, it, it's just it's just not happening. I mean, and that's in companies like where I used to work, which is a large tech company, which had mm -hmm. one of the most built out, sophisticated HR operations around. Still, mm -hmm. HR was not often listened to, you know, and to say nothing of a fucking law firm where it's right. just like, well, what's a, what's a generalist, you know? I mean, people don't even know that they can go to their HR person, you know? It's just like a facade. It's just they, they invest so much like in, uh, well, like in lawyers, in, in employment law, because it's all risk mitigation. Like that's what it's just turned into is HR is just how do we mitigate risk to the company? Which, you know, there's, right. there, 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 there's value in saving money, but there's also a lot of value in like keeping your employees happy, making sure that they're mentally healthy, making mm -hmm. sure that they're physically healthy, making sure they're getting enough sleep, you know, which is just like right. – absolute most fucking basic shit in the world and it's yep. not being achieved you know right and um i think I'm just gonna jump in with a little post editing commentary about how class works and this is a perfect example of class where it's not just getting the most profit possible it's the fact that you know the capital class the ruling class is actively hostile to the interests of the workers. It's not just about getting the most money. It's about this adversarial, contemptuous, kind of conquering type of attitude that actually we see in capitalism. And we're talking, like, we should say that we're talking about white-collar jobs. Um, like, yeah. you know, white-collar jobs. Because there are stressors on, you know, let's face it, you and I are blessed by our circumstances and we won the lottery, right? Um, as far as like being born into a good situation. Yeah. Um, and we went out there and achieved. <laughs> we went out there and achieved anyway. <laughs> anyway, um, like if you were to talk, if I were to tell my parents from 30 years ago that I'm an attorney, that I have, you know, X amount of money in the bank and that my, salary was you know really good yeah um, into the six figures at least yeah if i were to time travel 30 years and told my parents that they would be fucking ecstatic yeah you know what i mean yeah and yeah and if, if if you had told me three years ago four years ago i guess what what day is this five years ago <laughs> jesus before I entered my MBA, you'd be working for, you know, company X making this. Then you'd be working for a law firm doing data analysis, making even more. I would have been like, holy fuck, this is, this is exactly what I wanted, you know? Right, That's, right. I, and it was like 20% higher salary than I, than I ex was expecting to make because I didn't mm -hmm. have a strong background. But it's just like, no, no, it's, 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 it's still, uh, it's immiserating, you know? I mean, mm -hmm. I think I got kind of unlucky in my jobs. It wasn't as so much structural, but I think like also that that unluckiness is a product of the system. As, as right. Well. 
You know? Yeah, it's a product of a system and it's a product of a culture. I don't begrudge my parents for being ecstatic. I just don't think, like, you know, other factors are emphasized. They, they wanted me to survive. Uh-huh. Um, because, you know, their formula, if you check those boxes, you will survive and you will do well. Right. But the living in the experience, um, that's not necessarily the case. Um, you know, yeah. it's, it's, I mean, the, the question should be, are you content and happy doing what you do? That, that is a big box that should be on the list that a lot of times is not or is just being ignored. Yeah. And I, I think some of that comes down to like structural limitations on the economy, which is probably why I think immigrants in what, what I've seen are so willing to trade off like mm-hmm. personal contentment for success because their baseline of personal contentment expectations is usually not that high. Like, yeah. And I think, you know, I don't, I'm not a, I don't have statistics. I want but, I statistics. So. I, again, that'll be in the appendix. You probably shouldn't say this, but go ahead. My opinion only. Yeah. Uh, I think that it, the immigrant population generally, that, tra- that, you know, that immigrates to the United States is a self-selected oh, population. Incredibly. You know, um, and they, so they're like the baseline and they create their own culture. And I think part of that baseline is that they are an adventurous group. They're a group that's willing to make a trade-off to, they were a group that, were, that was willing to make a trade-off. For sure. You know, um, because they came over for, a host of reasons, you know, um, part of which being is part of which is uh, economic well-being, mm-hmm. um, yeah. and that you know, so that is, it makes sense to me that um, if we're talking about immigrants and children of immigrants, that, Looks like that's that, what yeah, yeah, it kind of went that way. Yeah, um, yeah. As you were saying about who selects to be an immigrant, and right. And why is so? All right, here's here's what I was getting at because there are probably a lot of economies that like simply just like don't function that well. You don't have like infinite opportunity, and it's like you're just kind of stuck. Or you know, like I know in South Korea, it's like you have about a seven to ten year range where you can really get you're going, and if you don't, yeah. it's just like. And you know, in comparison, the United yeah. States is like. It's kind of like infinite opportunity as long as you're willing to hustle. Hustle, don't ask for a lot, don't, don't agitate against the political structure, and yeah. uh, you could probably make some money, but you know, but then what cost? Just kind of like stuck in, mm-hmm. in, in this like non mobile society, which is. Um, I think that is right. I'm basically the same class as my parents. Um, I, I live less than five miles from where I grew up. Mm-hmm. It wasn't by choice. Oh, well, I mean, it was by choice, but looking back, um, yeah, I am the, the sum total of my influences. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's, it's no accident. And I think that's true of a lot of people. Yeah, the actual mobility from one gen- 
like for for me, it's I, I guess I could actually like very few of my parents, siblings, or my parents didn't get the degrees till they were in their thirties, and both worked for unions. You know, both made good wages as white as blue collar workers, um, and they're white, which always helps because then you have your children who are white, and like me and my sisters, we all present as like very, I would even say like Northern European, like you know. Anglo, Anglo, and then you know, you can kind of just move through that white collar world and kind of do all right for yourself in a way that you know, lot a lot of people probably could not. How do you think your appearance um, influenced how you were treated and what you and influenced your actions? Um, well, I think specifically as a person who was, I mean, I consider myself being as raised in a working class household. Uh, not in the Marxist sense of working class, but I'll just say blue collar. Like my dad is a paramedic. My mom was a nurse. Um, it's kind of a high pressure environment. And then I come out as a white male. I have kind of a jittery personality, kind of short tempered. But when you're white, that doesn't totally fuck your future. You know, like as a white guy who's pretty articulate, you can just kind of go in and reset in a lot of situations. Whereas if you're black or, you know, like people don't respond to women being as angry. And I think that blue collar people express themselves in a much more direct way. But if you're white, you'll, you'll get second chances. Like you can't totally fuck it up, obviously, but if you can sit down and, and interview relatively well, you know, and you kind of know the cultural signifiers, mm -hmm. uh, that, that, that kind of muddled class background, can just be hidden, I think. Right. I mean, it, it depends, I guess. I think you are right. White, male, white males are the default. No one's going to look at you too hard, basically. And, and anything other than being a white male needs, I guess, I think everyone has biases against everybody, but... Not, not me, but yeah, go ahead. No, 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 I don't mean bad biases. I just mean biases. Bias. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, but yeah, like, uh, I think white males arouse, you know, the least amount of bad bias by people who make decisions. Yeah, for sure. Well, and, and I, it's like you and, fly and, under the radar. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, or you can. You can. You can. Yeah. Like, right. I think that, like, the thing about... I, I don't always go with privilege discourse. I don't much... But I think it's, like, at least there's... I think because my, my general idea is that everybody deserves a second chance. So somebody getting a second chance isn't privilege. It's certainly an advantage. I certainly have an advantage in my life that others do. But that's more of a result of their disadvantage than like a huge, actually now I could say I personally do have advantages, white male with a graduate degree. Yeah, I, that's like, I'm like actually in privileged territory. But yeah. for, for a lot of people, it's just like, no, you just don't have any extra attention and you can fail and you can fuck up in life and get a second chance. And you know, if you're a single black mother, pff, no, you fucking can't. You mm -hmm. have like one shot and that's it, you know? Knowing that, does, does having that knowledge and identifying that 
um, does, does a duty, you know, in here, be, like by knowing that mm-hmm. into white males or everybody to do something about that to fix the problem. Oh, yeah. You know, so I, I you want to spread it. You want you want to make sure everybody gets that. Right. It's not enough to just know it. It's not no. enough to just say, you know what, I'm I'm a ma- I'm a white male and I can do this. I have this advantage. It's there's a is you know, the duty is to ask is everybody else could everybody else have these opportunities? And if not, why not? Mm-hmm. And if I care about fairness and justice, why aren't I advocating for that? Yeah. And I think, I think the, maybe the people who are more aggressive on the, if you know that you have advantages oh, yeah. and you benefit from them, then yes, there's a do that you have a duty to do something about it because you, you're in power. You right. have the levers of power available to you and you know that there's a problem and you should do something to rectify it. Yeah, and I, think, and I think that's where a lot of the frustration comes from. Well, yeah, I think part of privileged discourse is like people who go to like Middlebury and Oberlin standing up and being like, I acknowledge my privilege. And it's like, uh, okay, great. You know, like, that's great. Uh, and then like, as you're saying, they don't do anything about it. It's just like, well, I have it. And they just say it. Um, that's a problem. Another problem is like, how do you do that in the workplace? You know, that's what I think is like a big um because that's, that's really the force. And that's what I was talking about with getting second chance. You know? It's like yeah. in a professional sense. Is how do you get that in the workplace? I mean, obviously, there's, we, sh- we can and we should organize in our communities, right? And I'm trying to do that. I mean, I'm doing some basic stuff. But I mean. What a big man you oh, are. Oh, <laughs> look at me. I'm knocking doors. Yeah. <laughs> But in the workplace, it seems like it's, it's kind of tough because it really still just boils down to kind of institutional power within your company, you know? So your question was, how do you translate that into the workplace? Or have you seen, like, I mean, I know that at my law firm, we had, like, affinity groups. And you see that in a lot of corporate, you know, like, corporate structures, but, like, what it's it's like it's like we're going to talk about things that happen outside of work or something like it just it just doesn't ever be it doesn't ever seem to me like you know you're going to get this affinity group together and then like we're going to work to like lessen the power of our boss you know like yeah. why why would that ever be encouraged and so i think there's i think i think to change the workplace mm-hmm. um or to influence the workplace i think three things need to be done uh, first, you need to identify what's wrong. Mm-hmm. Second, you need to advocate for its change. Um, and third, you need to vote. And when you vote, and what I mean by voting is, if you're being treated unfairly or if you see someone else being treated unfairly, you need to leave. And you need to tell them why you're leaving. Mm-hmm. Because they need to know that... and. It, I'm not saying this is easy. I think this takes a lot of courage um, because it's done so infrequently. Um, oh, yeah. But, but it, I mean, the question is, how do you change it? That's how you change it. Yeah. That's exactly how you do it, right? Right. Um, um, it's actually now, very simple. I, th- I think like, with like a lot of problems, it's like 
it's a pretty simple solution. It's just like, okay, people are, I think, rightly scared to, to execute them. Absolutely. You know? Um, I think there are a lot of people um, who don't, who aren't capable or don't, don't want to risk um, advocating for themselves because they'll be viewed as insubordinate and disloyal. Right. To the company, to the person signing their checks. Right. Um, I guess, I don't know what, I mean, and, and I think that's a valid concern because I think, um, because I think a lot of times employers can act capriciously. Oh God. Yeah. Um, for, you know, percep- you know, what they think is, uh, insubordinate. Um, but there are real life, I guess if we're looking at it as, as, as a market, a labor market. Yeah. <clears throat> employers need to know that their failure to accommodate their employees are going to have real life costs for them. Right. And that is going to be the cost of um, both replacing labor, who's unhappy, training new labor. I mean, those are real world costs um, that oh, yeah. they have to grapple with. Turnover. And if, they, and if they were, if employers were made to feel that pressure, I think you would facilitate a change in the policies. So, so here's an interesting thing. I, I was a compensation analyst, like I said, for a major American tech company. Everybody knows who they are. Very large, very resourced. And I was given a task to like calculate a turnover metric. How much does it cost us to lose an employee? Mm-hmm. And there's nothing out there. Like I looked I, there was no like just immediate formula that everybody agreed upon. It's like, yeah. it's in, it's like, you're absolutely right. Companies need to know that there's a cost and it's like, they don't even, they, they, they don't, there's, there's clearly a cost, but in the internal decision-making of a company, if you can't give like a, a, a figure, it just, they, they don't even calculate it. It's, it, it's fucking insane. Like there's lost productivity, there's recruiting costs, there's, you know, the well-being of a team member who has to make up for the effort of somebody leaving. And there's no like easy formula. Like I had to come up with it as like a first year employee. And I'm like, man, this is fucking nuts. Like these things seem, I think to you and me, like, yeah, this is like a cost that they need to be aware of. And it's like, I don't know. I mean, maybe, maybe other companies have a better system, but uh, maybe, but I think that's a, that is a great point. I mean, uh, there's a difference between having an objective metric and, uh, having to grapple with that and, um, and not (laughs) because if you don't have something in, in black and white, you can ignore it. It's easier to ignore. Yeah. And I think that speaks to kind of the hierarchical, like, it's like, you know, we have a a democracy in our uh, public life and then you go to work and it's just like, it's a bunch of fiefdoms and it's like these executives are so busy and you got to like, you know, I got to run to a meeting, just give me the number. And it's like, man, that's not how you make decisions. Like, you know, let's sit down. And if you're going to make the decision, you should know what goes into my methodology. And it's just like, nope, it just gets like 
you have like a 45 second to a minute uh, opportunity to like make them aware of this. And if you don't, it's just like, all right, whatever. Because nobody's bonuses depend on their turnover ratio. It's whatever people are incentivized to do in these companies is what they're going to do, you know? And it's like, I think turnover is such a dispersed phenomenon where it's like the whole company loses people. If, if, if a company isn't like putting a penalty on an executive for losing people, it's like, no, one's going to care. Yeah, that's true. Having an, a, a, an incentive for managers to not lose people. Right. And how do you, I mean, how do, and I don't know, supervisors are never, I've never had the experience where I've reviewed a supervisor. Oh, no. 360 degree feedback is what they call that. Oh, does that happen? Well, it, it, it's, a, it's a hot thing in HR, 360, which means like people you work for, people mm-hmm. who work for you, people you work with, they all give mm-hmm. you feedback, right? But it's like, it's really time consuming. It's very hard to separate out bias. And it, you know, can like ruin, because it's like, you can kind of know sometimes who's saying what about you. Oh, I see. Yeah. Because it's like, if your subordinate gives you feedback, that's going to look different than if like your manager gives you feedback, just the things that they're going to notice, it might be pretty clear that like, oh, this is clearly a subordinate's take on my performance. And subordinates know that. Uh, What, how would it play out if, when I've been reviewed, I sat down with the HR person or like the one person, you oh, know, really? the, the representative. Um, Just them, not your manager? Correct. Whoa. So the process was I would get uh, the, the attorneys that I, with whom I worked, I had worked, um, they would do a written review um, and then they would submit it to the firm and the firm would then... I would then meet with um, either the managing partner, like the big boss of the department, or um, or the like the HR person. So no, I did not meet with the individual attorneys. Um, but uh, I think, like I sought out their opinions. Yeah. But I mean, not everyone does that. I think, and um, I, I think if people, I think meeting with the individual reviewers with uh, an HR person or a generalist in the room, um, I think that would encourage an open discussion. Oh, yeah. I think the generalist, I think the, the professional, the, the mediator, I guess, if you want to call it a mediation, would, you know, would make sure that it's not contentious and just a open discussion of working conditions. Right, right. And if, and, you can't, and if you can't learn from that, if you, you can't, can't, if you cannot learn from feedback about you that's not angry or not contentious, then the problem is you for not <laughs> you're the yeah. you're the problem for not being able to receive constructive criticism if on the off chance that you're getting constructive feedback you know mm-hmm. but yeah i think uh i think it's kind of, i mean just my my problem when i was at this tech company is that i was a direct my 
my immediate technical supervisor was a VP, but she didn't have any visibility into my work. There was some mm-hmm. other guy who was essentially my manager, but like not. And she'd give me feedback. And I'm like, Joanna, you've never seen me do this. Like, you're just repeating what this guy has told you. And I've told you repeatedly that he is not an effective manager. And I can't believe this is going into my file without me being able to give my input on this. I mean, it just came down to me being like, uh, no, no, I don't, I don't agree with any of this, you know? And uh, so this, that, that situation played out and, but not well. <laughs> no, it didn't play out well because it was so poorly managed. It was just like, right. I think it was, I don't know. I, you know, that's kind of a, kind of an underlying point behind this podcast is to talk about how poorly people's jobs go and yeah, just kind of like who's to blame. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's crazy. It sounds like, well, it sounds like you definitely suffered from a lack of basic managerial talent. Uh, yeah, I, yeah, I, I did. Um, yeah, I, I think that was one of the things that I struggled with. Um, and again, the other thing that I struggled with was um, my own, you know, my own uh, issues with dealing with expectation and, um, you know, the values that were inside me um, that I brought to the table. It was a bad combination. Um, and I wasn't prepared to deal with adversity mm. and didn't have um, grit. I, I, so John Wayne would call it, I would say I, I, I didn't have grit. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, he's, a, he's a masculine icon. Uh, yeah. And he's dead. Um, and <laughs> that's I'm so alive, tough. Is he? And I'm alive. And it wasn't because I found grit. It was because I managed to, um, I, I managed to uh, get in touch with what I wanted. And I don't really, you know, the acquisition of wealth uh, is such, for me, is a, a hollow goal. Yeah. Because it's, I mean, aside from security, you know, there, I mean, wealth can't totally be ignored. No. You need to be secure and eat. You need to be secure. Whatever. Go on vacation sometimes, whatever. Um, but, you know, just the acquisition of wealth for its own sake was an incredibly harmful um, influence on my life. And I lived that way. And it, it wasn't until I, <laughs> until I broke. Um, and, you know, I, I, um, I was terminated from my job. I wasn't dealing with stress and anxiety well. Mm-hmm. Um, and that triggered some major mental health repercussions. Um, and, I, you know, I, I'm better now. Um, but it, having gone through that experience has caused me to reflect on how I got there in the first place. Mm-hmm. And I, it's beginning to make sense. Um, and, you know, the values that drove me um, to that place, to, you know, being a lawyer and how I approached being a lawyer and then getting fired and then dealing with that, um, you, you know, they weren't working for me. 
Mm-hmm. And it, they weren't working for me because I wasn't happy. And I wasn't happy yeah. because I never asked the question, what makes you happy? Yeah. You know, and I think that because I spend, you know, people spend half of their waking lives at work or more. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And um, it's important to not hate it <laughs> with all your fucking essence. Yeah. <laughs> you know? And that's so fucking rare. <laughs> if, that is, if that is a socialist ideal, then... And, and I think a lot of people on the right, you know, they hear that and they think, oh, socialist, communist. But fuck that. That yeah. is... A, I mean, that is a right. That's a personal right. I don't know if it's a government... It's not a government right, but it's a right that I learn to claim um, by, I don't know, not being concerned about acquisition of wealth, by not really caring about others' expectations, but by listening to, you know, what makes me happy and what I can live with. Yeah. Yeah. And I think, you know, I think the whole wealth wages thing is a, that's a huge if, but... I think given the kind of podcast that I'm doing and who I want to talk to, I think we're going to see that a lot because actually in, in HR theory, I'm going to keep, keep coming back to this. There's some, the two factor motivational theory. And it says that compensation is a, a hygienic factor, which means that if you have it, you're okay. If you don't have it, like if you have it at the correct level, it's like water or soap. It's fine. You use it. You don't think about it. If you don't have it, it's like the only thing that you could think about, right? So it's like yeah. once you hit that hygienic factor, then you're left with all these other factors. Like I'm still fucking miserable. You know, I'm making 95 grand a year. Why do I fucking hate my life? And it's because, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's actually, it's like the same thing as Maslow, you know, it's, it's, it's that general idea. But I think what, what socialism does and especially I think kind of the democratic socialism that we're talking about is it democratizes the workplace, you know? So everybody gets a decision. It's the, the processes are much fairer. Like you could totally have a worker owned law firm. Partners could still be making big money, but just slightly less, you know, and the associates make a little bit more. But what could be changed about it is not even necessarily the money, although maybe it could just be like these fair, clear processes that are in place. Yeah. You know, it, what, I mean, when, you, when someone works, you know, in any worker, employer-employee relationship, um, the the relationship is defined, I think, by two things, compensation and working conditions. Mm-hmm. Compensation is a very objective metric. Yeah. It's easy to, you know, punch it into Excel. Yeah. Working conditions are much more squishy, I think. Oh, yeah. Um, and um, maybe because of that, because it's harder, because it takes more effort and because it's squishy, Subjective. Subjective, yeah. Um, it's, you know, people pay less attention to it. Yeah. 
It's it, it's harder to define, and you know, it's harder to go into a meeting with a again with an executive and be like, "Here's working conditions." You know, oh, I can read this yeah. on the chart. It's like part of it is the way that like decisions are made, where it's just like you got this two minute window. Could it's, it's just like, no, motherfucker, that's not how this shit works. You know. Yeah. Yeah, you, you you need to spend time on the front end to get the back end correct, and in a mostly privately held economy where institutional investors are demanding certain returns on their equity, nobody has the time for that. You know, nobody wants yep. to devote the time to getting. It's just like we want to. It's it's like they just expect their employees to be like fully formed right out of the head of zoo, you know, just like, boop, we don't want to develop them. We don't want to train them. Just boop, boop, plug them in and, yeah. and go. And it's like, you guys, that's, uh, it's never going to fucking happen. I mean, if you want to look at it from the shareholder perspective, I guess, or the, oh, the I, employer's I perspective, yeah. I think the way, I think the right way to look at your labor um, and your labor force is as not as costs, but as an investment, mm-hmm. um, cost yeah. is a cost is a bad word, you know. Right. You want to avoid costs, but I think the, a lot of the things that I think workers are asking for and need and want, um, healthcare, um, be treated with dignity and respect in the workplace. Um, you know, those are things that um, those are things that matter. They matter very deeply, mm-hmm. and yeah. you know, compensation is great. You can make a hundred whatever. You can make a million whatever. Um, but that's still a big trade-off that you're asking people to make if they have to eat shit getting there every day. Yeah, um, and you're taking them away from the things they do enjoy, like family, friends, whatever. Right. Um, it's an investment for the company to, you know, give people more time off. Yeah. To not, you know, to not, to, to give people more sick time, to uh, make sure they're healthy, to make sure their kids are healthy, um, to, to make, to make sure that they're they, they're treated fairly, right. um, because that that those costs associated with all those things will lead to happier workers. They will lead, which I think will lead to more productive workers, and it'll lead to less turnover. Yeah, which is a, a, like you, like we said, which is a cost. We know it's a cost. We haven't identified what the cost is, but it's definitely a cost. Right. I mean, if I sat down with like two or three other HR people, maybe from other companies, and we had like a week to come up with it, I bet we could have like an industry standard calculation ready. You know what I mean? Like not to toot my own horn because I'm not like super good at this, but it's, it's just not that fucking hard. There's, a, there's only a finite number of inputs and outputs and there you go, but they, they don't even do it. And here's something, like you said, turnover, right? I think at companies, especially executives, especially shareholders, they don't care about most of their employees. They only care about their top performers. They want to retain top performers. The rest of us are just like, just chum, just like churn us in and out. 
And I, I saw that at my former employer, where it was like, how do we keep top performers? Rather than examining, maybe the way we're identifying our performers is flawed. Like probably the way you were identified as your performance was like maybe initially flawed, but could have easily been improved with a little more context, you know, but no, cause there's this fucking choke point, which is the direct supervisor who might just be a fucking idiot. So they're just, so these companies are like, we're only going to keep our top performers. And it's like, how are you developing and evaluating your top performers? And I think that's another thing is that like, once they've kind of like determined that you're not a top performer, uh, you can see it in the way you're treated. I think, I, th I think for, for a lot of people, that's something that I would say to people who are at a job right now. Maybe you have not been identified as a top performer and therefore they don't give a shit about you. That's just something to think about, you know? Yeah. Um, and, that's, and that comes down to the performance management model being totally flawed where they don't know how to evaluate people, you know? Well, I think one thing that... Um, I think one thing that is important to remember is that we are a very mobile labor force. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. Um, and I think that, um, I, I'm a big fan of that. Being and mobile? I think people, yes. And I think people, I think, and from my own perspective, I would do well and I think I am doing well to vote with my feet uh -huh. and, you know, just, it's okay to not, if you're an employee, it's okay to leave a job. Oh yeah. Um, if you're being treated like shit or if you're not being treated like shit and it, you know, it's not a fail. It's not a failure. It's a, I don't know. I'm writing yeah. one again, but it's no, no. It's, I think it's we're gonna have to edit that out. No, no. It's it's a, it's a good I'm point. Is that well, you know what? But I, I think what you're talking about uh, being able to vote with your feet and it's not a failure. That's all true, right? I yeah. think that only counts for certain marketplaces. Like I'm talking like even geographically, like a city like Chicago where we are mm. definitely can do that. You know, it's like a regional capital essentially. Yeah, that's there's, true. There's lots of choices. Twin Cities is another example. There's a bunch of headquarters there. There's a bunch of competition. Austin, you know. Um, yeah. But the downside, of course, is if you're in a place like New York or San Francisco or these other cities that are kind of hemmed in by nature, mountains, rivers, water, there's not a big supply of housing, D.C., then you're playing this game where it's like, or fucking Seattle, where it's like, okay, I can keep switching jobs and my rent just keeps going up, you know? Mm. And I think in Chicago, we're, we actually have, we have it the best, where we can actually move around and job hop and make more money without worrying about massive housing inflation. Yeah. So I think mobile, a mobile labor force applies a pressure, should apply a pressure on uh, employers. Oh, yeah. It should, um, but, but they're aware of that and they collude. Oh yeah. You know, have you, have you heard of the tectopus? No. Tectopus. <laughs> tectopus? What the fuck is a tectopus? Tectopus. It is a article written in Pando and Pando is kind of like this 
Gonzo style. Oh, it's Mark Ames. Mark Ames is this Gonzo style jar- journalist who's, by and large, I think, pretty good at what he does. And they basically uncovered that the Tectopus was like collusion between Silicon Valley firms not to poach each other's employees. I have heard of that conspiracy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I didn't know its proper name was Tectopus. <laughs> well, and that's, that, that, that's what Mark Games called it. Yeah, and the Tectop- and it's like, uh, yeah, they collude to keep prices down, to keep labor great costs name. down. Great yeah, name. isn't it great? <laughs> Jesus Christ, these people. Where do they come up with these ideas? Yeah, um, yeah I think it happens. And I, I don't even think that you need to collude in order for there to be downward pressure on... Um, on the market, on the labor market, or uh, yeah. the compensation uh, market. Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, not a, or a, I don't know. Yeah, I guess an example. Yeah. We know that women are paid less than men, correct? Yes. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's a statistic, it's an objective fact that women in same or similar positions as men get paid less. Yeah. Um, if I'm an employer and I'm setting compensation for a female employee, I'm setting the compensation level based on her performance, you know, uh, merit, I suppose, but also that decision is being made in the context of a broader labor market and her um, her mar- she exists in that market where she is getting paid 7% less or whatever the statistic is. Yeah. Right? So that's what I'm for, going to offer her. Oh, yeah. For, 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 for same role, same experience, yeah. It's, it's not like 25 cents, but right. it's 7, 8, 9 cents, I think. Yeah. I mean, whatever the number is. Um, now, if I'm a, you know, a white male walks in, exact same merit, I'm going to set his compensation higher because if he leaves, if it's unacceptable to him and he leaves, um, he'll, he's more likely to find something that works for him mm-hmm. because he's getting a, you know, a dollar, oh, dollar on his return. It's like, even if you didn't really want to, it's like, you know, that yes, that's what the market's done for him. Yes. And uh, he's just following the market. Right. And this is what people get caught up with that fucking infuriates me. That people say, I didn't discriminate because I didn't, I didn't, basically they're saying, I don't have a hateful heart. I don't discriminate. <laughs> you know, that's basically what they say. And that's, you know, you don't need a hateful heart to benefit from discrimination. No. You know, but you have to be able to identify where discrimination uh, yields unfair uh, you know, unfair relationships. Well, yeah, I, th- I think and it's... you should fucking do something about it. Yeah. It's because, because it's like... A, not, you're part of the problem. And everyone's thinking about their intent rather than the impact. It's like, mm-hmm. we don't give a fuck about your intent, man. Like, look at the impact. Study the impact of what you're doing. I'm not concerned about what's in your heart. You right. know? I'm concerned right. about what what... What happens? Which you think in this fucking corporate world where it's like, the only thing that matters is results, you know? And it's like, but all of a sudden, it's like, oh, but that wasn't my intent. It's like, 
fucking five minutes ago, you were just reaming somebody out for talking about their intent because mm-hmm. you are focused on results, right? But all right. of a sudden, when, when your ass is in the sling, it's like, well, this isn't in my heart. Like, man, motherfucker, you have been trained since you got out of college to results are what matter. Make them sign on the line which is dotted, you know? And then when it's time for PR, all of a sudden it's like, oh, well, here's what I – it's like – it's such clearly self-serving behavior. I just think that it hasn't been pointed out. Again, I don't think people are hate. I think generally people are not hateful. I just think they're not asking the right questions. I mean, may, I mean, I'm, there are hateful people. Don't yes. get me wrong. Oh, yeah. But the, the clown in the White House? And Yeah. And those people need to be dealt with. Yeah. But you don't need a hateful heart to be part of a problem. You know? And it's... Mm. You know, you have to, I think the people who are deciding, who are, you know, benefiting from that, from those disadvantages, um, need to be made aware. Oh. And they need to grapple with that. Yeah. And they need to be moved to act more equitably and fairly. Yeah. Well, yeah. And I think what... And and I think that's a winnable goal. it's, it's, It's very winnable. It's very achievable. And I think what stops them is being prideful. And I think it comes down to, you know, maybe the age of the managerial class in this country, uh, maybe the, the range of years in which they were born, where there's a certain cohort of people, at least in the white collar population, who tend to think of themselves as infallible. And, you know, I don't know. I don't know. But we certainly saw that in the 2016 election when, you know, I do not doubt that whatever motivates Hillary Clinton is a hell of a lot better than what motivates Donald Trump. However, when you think about the way the, the impact falls, it's not nearly as far, as far apart as the intent. Like, Trump clearly is a piece of shit, has almost no discernible intent whatsoever, besides like his own ego. But it's like, when you're only thinking about intent and not impact, you know, that's a very prime example. You lose a fucking election to a, a complete fucking moron because you're only looking at your side of the equation. That, yeah. Maybe that's it's, a stretch. It, it becomes a, it, there's the conflict. I think what you just talked about is the conflict between facts and messaging. Yeah, yeah, oh yeah. And um, Trump... I think Trump won the messaging uh, messaging battle in the election because it was easy. He had a specific audience in mind and he knew he could motivate them. And he did. He did. I mean, it was gross. It was uh, repulsive to me and to you and to a lot of sane people. But uh, he knew what he was doing. It was a calculation. And he is a, mess- he is a messenger. And uh, the Democrats, and this isn't just a Hillary Clinton problem. This is no. a Democratic Party problem. It's they, lots of people. Right. She is not the problem. She is a symptom of the problem. She, she's also a symptom of the problem. Or I shouldn't say her. Her campaign was a symptom of the problem. For sure. Um, yeah, Tom, Tom Perez was advising her way back. Yeah. You know, I mean, like... A lot of usual suspects in the party. Right. Is, yeah, and who is the Democratic Party's base? Is it 
white collar people who make a lot of money and only care about, I don't know. Civility. Civility. Yeah. Is it, is it that crowd? Well, you Hamilton. can, you can, yeah, you can, I think you can appease that crowd um, by, you know, pretty easily, but there's not enough people there. No. And no. it doesn't, their interests don't re- represent everybody else's. It's not and it's, close. And, and it's, it's split anyway. It's like, it's, a lot of the managerial class is going to be class conscious, ergo Republican. Yeah, that's true. It's probably not 50-50. I'm sure most of the managerial class is going to lean a little bit socially liberal, but mm, I don't know. Not enough. Not I enough. Would, my guess is that that varies yeah. know, state to state. It does. I bet um, you in suburban Houston and Dallas, there's a bunch of Exxon execs or middle managers who love the Republican party, you know? Yeah, I think so too. Um, no, the, the battle that should be waged by the democratic party is the battle for people who need shit and aren't getting the shit that they need and deserve. Uh huh. And that yeah. is people who, um, whose wages haven't been, who has, haven't seen a, a real wage raise in a long time. It's people who are dealing with shitty bosses. It's dealing with it's 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 speaking to those people. It's speaking to um, people who are sick and need health care and can't afford it. Mm-hmm. Um, they are the reason I I've become much more suspicious of the Democratic Party um, or a lot of members of the Democratic Party is. Um, I don't know who they're speaking to, <laughs> you know, I don't know yeah. who they're trying to please. I don't know who their base is. Um, and I don't know how they're trying to uh, entice their base. I mean, it's almost like they're apologizing for trying to entice their, their base. Motherfucker, you don't need to apologize to say that, you know what, it's worth it to give access to everybody to, to give access to healthcare to, to everybody yeah. because you, because it's worth it to save people's life. Right. You know, yeah. they, you shouldn't have to apologize for that. It's very simple calculation, you know? Um, and I think that simplicity would appeal to a lot of people. And I think Trump figured that out different message. Um, yeah. But he applied that, that principle um, and the Democrats are not there because they yeah. feel like they have to, they feel the need to appease, I don't know, donors. Yeah. I think it's the need to appease donors. I think it's not think, offend, you know, not offend their constituents, right leaning constituents or I don't know. It's, it's a problem, but because they're trying to compromise with themselves before before even announcing a policy. Yeah, they, they, they've already compromised with themselves. Right, yeah. Well, and it's, it's something you see, you saw with Obama a lot, where it's like he really thought he was above like retail politics. When it's just like, man, just fucking take credit for it. Make it real easy. Don't give somebody a rent check, tax return, you know, a year later when they don't need it or something, some kind of rebate on their rent. Just cut them a check and be like, uh, the difference from me to you, I just gave you some money, you know? And... <laughs> That's it. But he's like, oh, no, no. that's not. 
Is that your Obama? Um, well, <laughs> folks, I, uh, I'm not going to write you a check. No, because it's like, <laughs> he, he, you know, he thought he was above that kind of retail politics of just this quid pro quo stuff. And it's like, I mean, that's what it is. All of politics, all of the legislative branch in our country, the entire purpose is to redistribute. That's the purpose of the legislative branch is, you know, appropriations. To bring bring in money and to spend it. Yeah. It's how do you distribute the money in this country? You raise the money and then you distribute it. And to act like, oh, distribution, redistribution, that's so gauche or gauche or however you say that. No, it's, it's the central function. Just make it simple. Like you said, like Trump did. I think Trump just got fucking lucky being on TV. And, you know, it's a, it's, it's a type of thing. Politics, politics in an environment of short attention spans, being on TV for a while gives you an advantage because you just, you just know how to get that quick idea out and move along, you know. And, um, and you know, Trump, Trump is- didn't win. Trump lost by 3 million votes. So it's not even like it's an insanely popular method even it's just surprisingly large number of people went for it i didn't think he could get more than 42 percent of the vote and he got 46 percent. you know but still it's it's not terribly popular no and pro- probably because it's an awful awful ideology you know yeah i think that's right <laughs> um it's fairly unpopular <laughs> it's a fairly unpopular ideology Every plank, every central plank of conservatism polls in like the 20s, you know, besides maybe, you know, kill those ISIS bastards or whatever. Everything else, it's really? like, well, when, when, when that fucking tax cut came out, it was polling like in the low 20s. Mm. And it's like, they, this is what the Republican Party is good at, though. They're good at passing unpopular policies and just moving on to the next thing. And they're not trying to, like, keep everybody happy. It's unabashedly, we're in it for these people. Yeah. That's what they do. That's what they do. And I think that's because they know how to message to their people. They know how to message and they know how to suppress votes. Yeah. The, I mean, yeah, they know how to suppress votes too. The voter suppression is like, I think, their central political project. Yeah. And now, well, now we're talking about a, you know, uh, that's a political problem. That yes, again, it is. You know, that uh, again, it's it's messaging. It's yeah. um, and you know they're you know people who support conservatives or the Republicans, not all of them, but many of them. Um, if you ask them, should everybody be able to vote? They'd probably say all citizens be able to vote. They'd say yes. Right. Um. But I don't know. If you ask them, Whatever. should you have an ID to vote? They'd probably also say yes. Yeah, that's true. That's what I mean. That's, that's what it comes down to messaging. Even though like, Trump totally fucked this up. He's like, uh, you need an ID to get groceries. He said that yesterday. He's like, you fucking idiot. Like, they can't even like, get their messaging on point. You know. But normally what they say is, I need an ID to you know, get into a movie. Why don't I need it to vote? And it's just like. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, is it good messaging or is it just like these dumbasses need a catchphrase to say to support their shitty politics? So people like Trump and, you know, what's his name? Frank Luntz just sticks a fucking 
sticks a fucking catchphrase in their mouth like a fucking pacifier for them. You know, it's kind of hard to kind of hard to tell what's what. But it clearly comes from the fact that in my mind, the Republicans have a coalition of people who are more comfortable with sales. And the Democrats are a coalition of people who are more comfortable with management to be very broad. And they're very different things. Hmm. I think. Well, so, I mean, you know, you would expect like all these fucking multi-level marketers and stuff. Like there's just a lot of snake oil in the Republican kind of like shadow party where you sign up for, I used to, for some reason I was getting emails from the American spectator, which is um, what used to be a pretty prestigious writing. I'll, I'll just give you both. Yeah. Give me both. Okay. Um, all right. Cool, man. Yeah. Um, should, should we do a send off? Sure. Okay. Um, all right. Well, all right, Carl, I think you're going to send me off now. Yeah, Alex, it was great talking to you. Thank you for sharing all of your knowledge with me uh, and your experience with everybody. All, all two of my listeners or however many. Uh, me and you. Yeah. <laughs> um, you're no not problem. really like online. Do you have like a Twitter profile or anything you want to, anything you want to promote before? Or just no. final thoughts? I'm here. Uh, I'm here uh, just to talk about myself. I have nothing to promote. Well, I don't know what the fuck is wrong with you, but okay. Um, uh, I don't promote myself on social media. It's probably for, for the best, unless you, I think unless you're going to be like a journalist or a media figure. I mean, maybe I will, but. Uh, I haven't decided that. Not through this avenue. Yeah, I mean, yeah. No, I'm right now. I'm just happy to talk with you uh, for a little bit about my thoughts and experiences. That is gratifying enough. Well, that's good. So you you feel good about getting this out there? Uh, yeah, I guess so. <laughs> <laughs> we'll that's we'll that's all I can hope for. No, no, I, you know, I've listened to pod, you know, I listen to podcasts and um, <laughs> one podcast I listened to, one of the first I listened to that I thought was very good was um, Talk Salad and Scrambled Eggs. Is that a Frasier? <laughs> Is that a Frasier podcast? It's a Frasier podcast. <laughs> That's amazing. And uh, it's with Kevin Smith and I don't know his name, but another writer who's, not as famous as Kevin Smith to uh, yeah. people like me, but he's, you know, he works. He, he, he's a comedy writer, I think. And he's okay. very good. That's um, awesome. But yeah, so they, you know, basically walk through episodes and talk about it and make jokes and talk about anything. Um, like a lot of Battlestar Galactica, which I'm not a fan of, but now I yeah. have some knowledge of it. It's a good show, man. Yeah. But yeah, Kevin Smith, uh, would say, you know what, man, if you have a passion and you have something to say, just give it a try. Yeah. Go on, go on a podcast and see what happens. If you're passionate about something, share it. Hell yeah. And um, I am, a lot of the things that we talked about, uh, I am passionate about. I'm passionate yeah. about my own happiness. I'm, I'm passionate about uh, others' 
access to happiness. Mm-hmm. And I, I want to see that happen. Um, yeah. So I don't know if I add anything to that, but talking about it is gratifying. So cool. So, yeah, thanks for giving me the opportunity to do that. Oh, of course. Thank so, you yeah, for- I guess it's, if I am going to promote one thing, it would be the podcast Talk Salad and Scrambled Eggs. Okay. <laughs> You're gonna Worth checking out. The, the, the Kevin Smith empire grows. Right. There you go. <laughs> All right. I'll talk to you later, Carl. All right. I'll talk to you later. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. All right, folks. Well, that was the podcast. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in. And remember, you could find the pod on SoundCloud, How to Win Friends and Dismantle Capital. You could find me on Twitter at Carl Orkmanson. That's C-A-R-L-O-R-K-M-A-N-S-E-N. Carl Orkmanson on Twitter. We're going to get a Patreon up and running soon and going to have a lot more stuff for you. So uh, thanks for tuning in and have a great day.